Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about establishment of religion and what the First Amendment and the U.S. Bill of Rights means by that. It was never my design to try to leave the topic of prayer in schools and prayer in school amendments hanging from the last show. However, it's a difficult challenge to decide that there's a certain length that I want these inappropriate conversations to be, and yet there are some topics that I think have enough detail to them that it would push that boundary a bit too far. When the last show ended, the question was raised whether it was enough to say that we probably shouldn't support prayer in schools amendments because Jesus told us not to pray that way not to pray publicly in school so that we could be seen by others, because synagogues were the public educational centers of Hebrew society. You don't get a better parallel to school than synagogue, at least for Jesus' time. So my final word at that uh, point in the recording was, the Lord said it, I believe it, that settles it. Right? Well, it might settle it, but I've got more to say, even if it does settle it. But first I want to start with our different drummer, because I feel like it's an important idea to reintroduce the topic properly by referring to Matthew. It's tempted to call him Matthew of Capernaum, but I'm not sure we've got the location exactly right. Matthew, one of the 12 disciples of Christ, is unique among the others because he came as essentially an outcast. Matthew's immediate job or immediate role in society before joining Jesus and traveling with him was tax collector. At a time of enemy occupation, a proud people, like the Hebrew people, would not be at all happy about someone from their own tribes being a tax collector, taking their money and giving it to the Romans especially if the process of taking the money and giving it to Rome's taxes led to a little bit of individual wealth or civic prestige for that individual. That was pretty much the depiction of tax collectors throughout New Testament accounts. Every time you hear them mentioned, they tend to be scorned by their fellow Jews because of the um, role that they've been given in society by the Romans. And in this case, Matthew left that position of prestige and power and also went into a place where all of the other disciples were going to have to take some time getting used to him as going from somebody who was the enemy to somebody who was now a friend and comrade in their midst. Matthew wrote what is the first gospel in the New Testament, a gospel he intended to be read by Jewish believers, making numerous references to Jewish prophecy, and one of the better chroniclers in the Bible. I know that it's widely regarded that Luke is probably a better storyteller and certainly has more words in the New Testament accounts. But I certainly like the way that Matthew tells a story and the way he ties the stories that he does tell back to the original Old Testament texts. In fact, I feel so strongly about Matthew as a writer. At the time that I was still working as a writer, and my wife and I were beginning to identify things like, well, if we have a child, what would the girl's name be? What would the boy's name be? My initial thoughts about the boy's name 
was uh, was Matthew. In fact, I was so committed to the name that it's actually a bit of a surprise and a story that I won't tell right now to explain why my son actually isn't named Matthew today. Matthew's gospel has the truly definitive words on prayer. During the final moments of his life in the Garden of Gethsemane, we get uh, an account of Jesus praying that actually raises a lot of questions for me as a believer, uh, that we've heard very little about what that prayer is. There's not a lot of that prayer in the very hours before his death that are recorded in Scripture. And it's always aroused my curiosity because it's described as a prayer that took all night. It was a several hours event. Matthew is also one of the Gospel writers who gives accounts of Jesus going off to find time alone and in private to gather his thoughts and, and pray without distraction. And that's, to me, also a very good thing. The example that Jesus provides for us in prayer is actually from the Sermon on the Mount as well. Unfortunately, too often we see what's called the Lord's Prayer turn into almost a, a chant, um, words that have to be spoken in exactly that sequence and in exactly that order, which is ironic because I don't think that most churches pray the Lord's Prayer in the exact words that appeared in Matthew's Gospel. But again, it's become sort of a sort of a thing to say as opposed to necessarily being a mode or model for prayer, as Jesus without a doubt originally intended. During the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shared this prayer, and in the same passage he gave the very specific directions that we talked about last time about how we should pray, how we should be seen praying, whether we should be seen and heard praying at all. I want to repeat that scripture verse and then get back into my thoughts on whether or not a prayer in school amendment should stand any prayer itself of being passed. Here is Matthew 6, verses 5 and 6. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Those are the words of Jesus recorded by Matthew, today's different drummer. The Pollyanna Calgo Records Podcast. Hi, this is Tony Pucci, host of the Pollyanna Calgo Records Podcast. I'd like to invite you to join me each week as I play 12 great indie tracks from talented artists from around the world. The Pollyanna Calgo Records Podcast is now part of the Simply Syndicated Podcasting Network. Please visit simplysyndicated.com to subscribe to the feed, participate in the forum, and check out all of their great shows. The Pollyanna Calgo Records Podcast, indie music at its finest. I will grant that my Christianity is conservative, even congenital, for want of a better word. I go straight to the source, and I do not believe that Jesus has been corrected in any way by the future words of popes or saints or even apostles. Simply put, if a saint has made a proclamation that directly contradicts the Gospels, I have no problem resolving that conflict. Jesus, as God, cannot be wrong. Therefore, the saint must be wrong. In this regard, I am simple-minded. America was originally colonized by a wide variety of settlers. Some of them joined the indigenous population of this continent to get away from simple-minded people like me. 
I think it's a great credit to the U.S. Constitution that the Bill of Rights begins by preserving the rights of these people. That includes those who wrongheadedly believe that Jesus could be mistaken in the words that he issued and the commands that he gave. I find it ironic that many people who have been protected by the so-called First Amendment now find it bothersome and badly in need of reinterpretation. What's wrong with the First Amendment? Well, primarily, it is being used to block those who want to establish or reestablish a formal prayer in public schools. Like Jesus, the First Amendment is quite emphatic. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Note that I have quoted the entire amendment to avoid any accusation of losing context. To focus on the relevant passage, though, let me restate. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. I don't see how this amendment could be any more emphatic. It not only forbids the legislative establishment of a national religion, it further forbids any law with even a respective relationship to an establishment of religion. In short, it just says no. Some supporters of proposed constitutional amendments regarding prayer in public schools have relied on the free exercise clause out of context. The notion is that being denied the mandate to pray aloud in unison with a complete group of fellow students is an unconstitutional breach of free exercise. Let me say that again. Being denied the mandate to pray aloud with a complete set of fellow students is an unconstitutional breach of free exercise. This ignores two crucial points. One, others being coerced into joining a, quote, free, unquote, exercise of religion, praying aloud with you in school because you want them to, is itself interfering with or prohibiting their free exercise if they would rather pray only as Jesus directed. Two, if no law respecting the establishment of religion is permissible, then no law is permissible even if a group of people feel that such a law is essential to their free exercise of religion. In other words, from a constitutional perspective, if your freedom of religion can only be realized by coercing others into joining you at the expense of their own faith, then you are the exception that proves the free exercise rule. Your religion must be banned in order to preserve the freedom of religion our country was founded upon. Sorry, but you are probably guilty of being as simple-minded as I am. A grassroots movement targeting secular humanism has tried to identify modern society as an illegally established religion. The logic ultimately leads here. To abstain from mandating formal prayer in school is, in effect, an expression of a form of godless faith. Our schools, we are told, have been illegally establishing this form of religion, and it manifests itself in the lack of religious expression. When the argument veers into a majority rule kind of movement, it becomes irrelevant. Since the First Amendment is designed to protect minorities, majority rule is a fatally flawed argument. On the other hand, some of those who are fighting against secular humanism argue that elements of Christianity in school is no more an establishment of religion than the elements of secular humanism that they already find there. As interesting as this concept is, it is nonetheless paradoxical. 
If secular humanism is an evil that must not be established in our schools, it hardly seems credible to claim, in the same breath, that it doesn't really establish anything from a First Amendment perspective. My guess is that proponents of this argument don't take seriously what establishment means when they say that formal Christian prayers in schools have nothing to do with establishment. Let's try an example on and see if we can isolate the breaking point of what the First Amendment is stipulating. A group of school districts, in accordance with their legal standing, elects to change the school calendar and a few related policies to address a perceived need. First, they eliminate most existing school holidays. School will be open on Christmas Day unless it falls on a Friday or Saturday. The school week will run from Sunday through Thursday every week. The only lengthy break will fall during the Hajj, specifically the last month of the Muslim lunar calendar. Parents will have those weeks available every year if they want to take their children to visit Mecca or Medina. During the ninth month of the Muslim lunar calendar, the cafeteria will close. Children would be permitted but discouraged from bringing their own lunch to school. Those children who didn't eat would be treated to carnival games or other special activities to de-emphasize the break in the normal lunchtime routine. Every day would begin with morning prayer, and on certain days the prayer would include specific readings, perhaps from the Quran. At times, some students would be permitted to lead others in a more formal type of prayer, including kneeling on floor mats and facing toward the east. Please permit me to confess something. I would consider these changes an attempt to establish Islam within those school districts. I could not dismiss them as being more about a cultural experience than a religious one. I'd be tempted to draw the line somewhere. Clearly, in the midst of that hypothetical proposal, the First Amendment was being violated. Does that mean that school being out on Christmas Day is illegal? Do cafeterias violate the First Amendment by serving fish on Fridays during certain weeks in February, March, or April? Should baking winter holiday cookies or decorating classrooms in pastel-colored eggs in springtime be banned? While some school districts debate year-round studies, should they also consider including Sunday as a day for school? No, I'm not suggesting anything of the sort. Still, I would caution those who want to remove the establishment of secular humanism from public schools that there is plenty of Christianity established there as well. That is true now, even without formalizing a morning prayer ritual. As with Jesus and inerrancy, it is possible to believe in the U.S. Constitution and yet think that the First Amendment is just, well, wrong. I don't understand that point of view any more than I understand Christians who acknowledge that Jesus is God incarnate yet conclude that he is just wrong from time to time, or his preaching is incorrect somehow. I suppose the tradition has much to do with both of these paradoxes. One person may say, Heaven forbid anything Jesus said in the Bible gets in the way of what my church has always done. The other person may say, Our founding fathers believed in God and praying, and the Constitution shouldn't be read to change that. I'll ignore the former example for now and revisit it during the faith segment at the end. As for the latter example, there are numerous objections, but I'll try to be brief. 1. Some of our so-called founding fathers were deists, who did not believe God answered prayers. Certainly they would have no objection to anyone praying, since deists didn't believe prayer would amount to anything. Modern Christians would be very uncomfortable with the beliefs of several men, whose work was crucial both before the Constitutional Convention, Thomas Paine, Thomas Jefferson, and after, 
James Madison, Benjamin Franklin. Two, others, of course, held a more committed view of prayer that said there were no integrated public schools at the time. Generations would pass before official government funding would encompass public education. Three, even if we accept that America spent decades with a formal public prayer in school, not to mention daily Bible readings, that doesn't mean the courts are interpreting the First Amendment incorrectly now. It's at least equally likely that the courts were failing to interpret the law correctly in the past. After all, for more than a century, our courts interpreted, quote, men, unquote, having the right to vote in a manner that is laughably unacceptable today. Or would we suggest that the amendment granting women the right to vote was a mistake because women couldn't vote when our founding fathers wrote the U.S. Constitution? We should not be so intent on forcing founding fathers to say what we want them to say. In spite of their wisdom, they weren't always right. On the other hand, some things, like the First Amendment, were written so brilliantly that they may have unwittingly prepared our country for a then-unimagined mix of cultures and creeds. Whether prayer alone establishes religion is a matter of faith, which I'll address later. Nevertheless, the First Amendment effectively draws all the distinctions we need. On the one hand, free exercise guarantees that a student praying between classes or during a test or before lunch must be protected. On the other hand, groups of students formally led in a call and response or memorized prayer session establishes something that a majority of Americans would forbid if a minority religious group or cult were leading that ritual. Too often proponents of prayer in school amendments are characterized as zealots seeking to impose their religion upon the masses in order to indoctrinate a captive audience. This simplistic view fails to address one of the core concerns that school prayer is intended to address. While every society views itself as sinking from important standards, many in our society look directly to the 1962 through 1964 Supreme Court decisions about schools and religion as the source of a morality meltdown. Two years after the decisions about the separation of church and state, the summer of love would change both music and culture forever. Musicians in San Francisco spawned a movement that spread sex, drugs, and rock and roll across the country. By the end of the 1960s, every corner of America would be aware of hippies, flower children, and dropouts. Student anti-war protests disrupted presidential campaigns. The movie Woodstock was initially X-rated because of both nudity and profanity captured in the concert documentary. As a nation, many of us have blindly accepted the connection between the end of classroom prayer and the counterculture. Common sense must lead us to re-examine that conclusion. Why? Because so much is at stake. If we invest all our energy into repairing the damage done by this morality meltdown through school prayer, we had better be correct. Time is slipping away, and far too much of the damage has settled in, perhaps permanently. Will daily prayer correct the path of our society? I absolutely believe that prayer can cure all of our ailments. Will the form of prayer so prevalent in the classrooms of the 1950s and early 1960s suffice? Absolutely not. For the most part, two groups of people were involved in the summer of love. One group was made up of high school dropouts. The far larger group was made up of young adults in their early 20s. 
Unless the San Francisco schools of the 1950s were a decade ahead of the Supreme Court's decisions, then every influential member of the Haight-Asbury subculture prayed in school every day. That is true throughout the counterculture. Janis Joplin was 22 at the time, and her Port Arthur, Texas school district was strongly committed to daily morning prayer. Jimi Hendrix was even older and surely prayed in Seattle, Washington schools. All of those daily devotionals didn't stop them from preaching sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and it didn't stop others from following them. These facts rely on the naive assumption that school prayer stopped on the very day the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court pounded his gavel. Small school districts in Tennessee and Alabama are still fighting lawsuits over prayer in schools to this day. Those schools did not stop the practice in 1964 and started again 40 years later. They have never stopped formal group prayer in school. For the most part, they have simply intimidated those who disagreed with the practice into silence or relocation. My experience from 1969 to 1975 in a large Midwestern city is further testament. At a certain point near my graduation from elementary school, our homeroom teachers dropped the morning prayer and continued only with the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. A steady weekly exposure to Christianity continued, though. My speech teacher used the Bible to lead students in both memorized and impromptu speech. My music teacher used hymns just about year-round not just at Christmas time when I sang highlights from the Messiah. Even our Christmas carols were heavily slanted with the Jesus songs outnumbering the Santa songs by, I would say, five to one. Yes, bad people have done bad things since 1964. The truth is, almost all of them either prayed in school or followed the examples of those who did. The hedonism inherent in the sex, drugs, and rock and roll subculture has done great damage. It exploded the hypocrisy of adultery into rampant extramarital sex. It submerged our culture's after-work martini routine into a haze of an any-drug-will-do stupor. It tempted generations of youth to seek answers to life questions on the top 20 countdown rather than scriptures. Prayer in school is a straw man argument, though. Supporters of these proposed constitutional amendments have pointed to all the bad things I have mentioned, blamed it on the separation of church and state, and urged us to restore formal classroom prayer in public schools as the solution. Truth is, there is no logical argument that the lack of classroom prayer started any of these problems because all the people we blame for starting these problems prayed in school every day. That is, to the extent that there ever was comprehensive nationwide daily prayer. Furthermore, most of the people who followed those counterculture leaders also prayed in school every day. The problems themselves don't lead us to the conclusion that prayer in schools is the magic bullet. Were students in the 1950s classrooms praying to resist specific temptations like premarital sex? Or were they just saying, lead us not into temptation? Did the unison prayers call upon God to provide us comfort from the strain of the world instead of vodka and Valium? Or did they simply say, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil? Did we expect our morning ritual to give us answers to moral dilemmas? Or were we just following the teacher and repeating, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us? During the 1960s, a great deal of pressure was applied to our society. Racial unrest, the spread of communism, assassinations of presidents and candidates, military police action in Vietnam, nuclear missiles aimed at America from the Caribbean, 
The form of prayer that many seek to restore did not prepare those school children for the bombs that would blast in their paths. Even a daily service filled with hours of sermons, hymns, and scriptures may not have sufficed. Instead, we generously refer to our classroom solution as prayer. I suggest that we are using the term prayer very loosely here because Jesus Christ has already stipulated as much. What I experienced in school, a direct vestige of what the constitutional amendments would seek to restore, could more accurately be called a pledge of allegiance to God. Like the morning flag salute, the words were canned, memorized, repeated in monotone most of the time. In some ways, the fact that we were repeating the words together was as significant as the words' meanings. No one ever considered what to do if a student delayed the remaining homeroom agenda because God, heaven forbid, interrupted to answer those prayers. A parishioner once told me that school prayer was appropriate in spite of Christ's admonitions because of what Paul said, pray without ceasing. He was referring to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 to 22, specifically verse 17. And we exhort you, brethren, admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophesying, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Paul of Tarsus. The problem is that this form of prayer is inconsistent with the instruction of Jesus, who clearly did not support a pledge of allegiance to God spoken aloud for all to hear. In fact, school children who follow Christ would have to stop their constant prayer long enough to indulge in this pledge of allegiance and then renew their constant prayer again afterward. Unfortunately, few of them then or now actually pray without ceasing to begin with. Worse yet, how many of these students believe that the morning Pledge of Allegiance to God actually is genuine prayer, a line of communication with the Lord, opening one's heart to the Father who hears the unspoken and reveals the truth to the unseeing? It's no small wonder that we have experienced a crisis of morality and spirituality that has spawned serious religious consequences to this very day. We don't even know what praying is. Well, wouldn't a harmless Pledge of Allegiance be a worthwhile step in the right direction? Absolutely not. As long as the proposed daily Pledge of Allegiance to God is identified loosely as prayer, it is likely to be confused with one. That has produced and would continue to produce more harm than good. Those who support these constitutional, canned, recitative prayers probably have higher expectations of the impact these pledges would have. It goes without saying that these pledges won't become a new kind of covenant with God written onto the hearts of believers as Jeremiah and Ezekiel promised. To the contrary, it is doubtful that these pledges will even be committed fully to memory. When I was a freshman in junior high school, my honors English teacher began the spelling portion of our coursework with a test. We had five minutes to correctly write, spell, and punctuate the Pledge of Allegiance. I've never known whether she was seeking to get us started quickly with some obvious easy material or whether she was looking to cut us down to size and show us not to take how much we knew for granted. The brightest English students in ninth grade 
each wrote the words we had recited aloud every day through at least elementary school. Two students earned A grades, and one of them was 100%. The rest of the class performance was pathetic. More students earned Fs than As. Only a handful earned a score better than a low C. Some students didn't even write the correct words, much less spell them properly or insert commas and periods appropriately. None of us were graded on our ability to explain the significance of the term indivisible. Recall the history of the phrase under God being added in the 1950s or define republic. One reason for supporting a recited prayer in school at the beginning of the school day is memorization. Perhaps there is hope that students will turn to God later in life if they say the word G-O-D at least once daily. My experience with pledges of allegiance, whether to flags or creators, tells me there is no guarantee that students will even remember the meaning of the words they are reciting. My freshman class proved they couldn't even spell them. Personally, I am most uncomfortable ignoring the instructions of Jesus Christ and the Constitution's Bill of Rights. I'm uncomfortable on general principles. Like most people, though, I am weak. I could be tempted to betray my faith both in God and country if some compelling payoff could be realized. Basic logic and common sense tell us that these prayer in schools proposals offer no such payoff. Starbase 66, the international Star Trek and science fiction podcast. Join our collective at www.simplysyndicated.com or via iTunes, keyword Starbase 66. From this time forward, you will listen to us. I believe prayer is a powerful way to address any problem, and true communication with God can improve all of the issues we face today. My disagreement with the proponents of prayer in school amendments is not about prayer so much as faith. Both of us believe that prayer can change the world, change the world spiritually from within, as Jesus describes throughout his ministry. At times, I'm not sure what the supporters of these amendments do believe. Listen carefully to any First Amendment debate, and you will hear an alarming testimony from a large number of politically active Christians. This is not about establishing a religion. We're only talking about a prayer. God being in our state motto doesn't mean anything more than God being on our money. No one is trying to change what anyone thinks or believes. We're just trying to restore an age-old tradition. Maybe Jesus was referring directly to our times when he used the Sermon on the Mount to admonish those who saw prayer as a matter of status or politics or honor. These quotes, all of which I have heard either face-to-face -face or through media reports, are a far cry from a ringing endorsement of God. The power of prayer is not only diminished, it is flatly denied. Saying the word G-O-D seems much more important than doing his will. Perhaps the goal is to lie about the significance of Christianity as a means of engaging in stealth evangelism. It doesn't work, though. The more you de-emphasize the effect a relationship with Christ can have, the more you make that relationship seem pointless. Well, I've got a reply to these three quotes. If your prayer has no power to establish your religion, then you are not praying. Start using a different expression for your pledges of allegiance to God. Chant might be a good start as in Nietzsche Ren Soshu Buddhism, because what you're talking about can't truly be prayer. 
Once you decide to place the significance of God below the significance of the money or crest or building that you're engraving, then you are placing other gods before him. Quick word of advice. While you are lobbying lawmakers to have the Ten Commandments engraved on any public plot with a vacancy, try reading them. Because your public statements are violating those very commandments. If we aren't striving to put public formal prayer into schools in order to change what these students believe, then how do you expect to make a difference in their actions? I agree that the proposed form of prayer is very unlikely to transform anyone's life. By the way, that's not a selling point. To summarize, true prayer should establish a religion. If it cannot, then it is a pointless waste of time. If that fact makes these school prayer proposals unconstitutional, is there a place in school for expressions of faith at all? Certainly. Schools have already done much to accommodate Christianity in ways that pose no constitutional problems. School schedules are created to avoid conflicts as much as possible. Some school districts work to find ways to schedule around crop harvests, for example. In that same manner, school boards are wise to stay away from Sundays and holidays like Christmas. It is better to avoid large attendance problems up front and then work patiently with dates that are significant to smaller groups of students. Cafeterias are wise to maximize the number of students who eat what's on the menu by making those meals as attractive as possible. Fish on Fridays during Lent establishes good business sense as much as anything else. As far as classroom cooking and decorations go, how do we view people who take seasonal events just a tad too seriously? Well, I'd say a majority of Americans regard those who equate Halloween with Satanism as crackpots. For the record, opening a line of communication with God by praying to Jesus Christ is a way of transforming the soul of a person. Hanging a decorated paper egg outside a classroom is a way of transforming the doorway of a learning environment. There is a monumentally huge difference between those two. I am well aware that serving Christmas cookies and scheduling Good Friday as a half day will not change the world. Proponents of prayer and school amendments still have a list of problems they join the rest of us in wanting to solve. If a pledge of allegiance to God is not the answer, then how should we address the residual impact of our culture's sex, drugs, and rock and roll based sins? There is no denying that values are sadly lacking in our society. Schools are an ideal place to deal with values because we can, and we should, teach right from wrong at the same time we teach history, social studies, even math and English. Unfortunately, our problems have become so significant that they cannot be addressed solely in the margins. If values are what we are concerned about, then why don't we devote some concentrated energy right there? Instead of devoting two minutes a day to a chant-like prayer, why not devote a solid hour to values? The same questions we hear from agnostics about prayer, namely, whose prayer, is surely going to come up about values. In this case, though, the answer is easy and obvious. We should be teaching everyone's values. Earlier I made the observation that some Christians get really aggravated when the words of Jesus interfere with the way their particular church has always operated. I'm guilty, too. If my way and his way come into conflict... Past performance does not offer a clear prediction about which path I am likely to follow. Teaching values becomes a bigger challenge. If many Christians can't be trusted to keep an open mind about what Jesus said, you can forget about expecting much tolerance for a wider variety of viewpoints. 
The same people who claim that they will tolerate the prayers of different persons' faiths in order to get formal prayer back in school are likely to balk at a classroom time devoted to that same stranger's values. On one hand, it's a glaring irony. On the other hand, it is consistent with the notion of some Christians that prayer in school doesn't really mean anything. I find it encouraging that those same people view the idea of teaching values as risky, dangerous, even unwanted. It confirms my belief that this approach both means something and has a genuine chance of changing lives and getting our society back on course. In order for a class of values to pass First Amendment constitutionality, it would have to include a full range, to focus properly on religion, and maybe sidestep some of the muddle of raw philosophy. The course would have to cover a handful of world religions at equal depth. If you devoted three weeks each, perhaps, to Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and tribal spirituality elsewhere in the world, you would still have half the school year open. That is crucial. In addition to covering this range of values and beliefs, time would have to be set aside for any other belief system represented in the classroom. With what seems to be a large and growing population of agnostic and atheist households, giving those students equal time might take some time. Furthermore, having a large number of open weeks would give students the ability to focus more time on particular religions. If the overwhelming majority of students were Christians, then the extra available weeks would quite properly give more time to studying values from a Christian perspective. Some have suggested to me that such a curriculum could never legally be mandatory. I don't know the answer to that. On the other hand, you could give a four-year high school student these choices. Values, one through four, so they could repeat the course every year, delving into greater detail. Or some combination of ancient humanities, mythology, classical philosophy, or modern philosophy. In either case, the student is going to be exposed to a strong dose of values. My guess is that most would choose the values series. They would still be challenged to think and to learn right from wrong, but the homework load might vary dramatically. Agnostics and atheists have no standing to oppose this values education. Clearly, the state would not be endorsing any form of religion if full and proportionate time was devoted to all religions. For agnostics, what a better way to seek a course than to have the buffet table loaded before you? Atheists are quick to claim that not being religious is not the same thing as not having values. This plan provides a wonderful opportunity to show that. I'm not worried about complaints from unbelievers, though. I'm also not worried about protests from Nichiren Soshu Buddhists that they only got a couple of days. They probably would relish the opportunity to share their beliefs even in just a couple of days. No, I would expect the largest outcry to come from the very same group that insists on reinterpreting our Bill of Rights in an effort to put values back in schools. I fear this because there is a widespread perception among some Christians that to listen to a different viewpoint is to acknowledge it, and to acknowledge that other people hold different views is to accept it. And for some evangelical Protestants, in particular, acceptance is a very touchy issue. Some evangelicals would prefer expressing hateful intolerance than risking any perception of acceptance. The only answer I offer to this comes back to faith. Quoting the writer of the book called Hebrews, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. 
For me, that conviction represents a knowledge. Faith is greater than mere hope or belief. It comes with a non-empirical experience of truth. Faith is not I know it because I saw it, but it is a knowledge nonetheless. Unlike some Christians who guard their faith as though it can be stolen or consumed, I regard my faith as something that will only grow when shared or at least exercised. For that reason, I do not fear an opportunity to listen to the beliefs of a stranger. I relish that opportunity because I have confidence that what I know to be true, through faith, has much more power than what someone else believes to be true. Yes, this proposed coursework has the potential to get ugly. We have no way of knowing whether a student involved in witchcraft or other elements of the occult will bring her or his value system up for discussion or how the other students might react. That conversation is still probably happening on an almost daily basis during lunch, however. One year to the next, we have no assurance that a particular classroom will have an articulate Christian student enrolled. It's always possible that a student or a group of students will come away from this coursework more confused about values than when the summer ended. As a Christian, I have a way of dealing with these worries. It's called faith. Clearly, an amendment to the U.S. Constitution formally establishing daily group prayer in public schools is a bad idea. As proposed, it either misses the mark that Jesus Christ said we must not fall below, or it crosses the First Amendment line into establishing a genuine religious experience by a mandate of majority rule without any regard for the free choice of students. Even a cursory review of recent history tells us that the problems being blamed on the absence of prayer in schools were festering while school prayer was unchallenged. As a society, we've identified a frightening list of social problems. If those problems cannot be blamed on students who weren't exposed to homeroom prayers, then those problems must be from another source. A confused or deficient set of values is an excellent place to look, and teaching values comprehensively is the best possible solution. There is one other significant cause for our present crisis of values. As you might expect, even a society that refuses to teach students right from wrong is still teaching something in that vacuum. When people who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ view the behavior of certain outspoken Christians, what do they see? Do they observe Christians who lie about the truth that prayer may be the ultimate establishment of spirituality because lying may be the only way to pass an amendment? Do they have a vague and hazy understanding that sometimes politically active Christians act in ways that Jesus Christ emphatically warned against? Do they note the inconsistency between calling Jesus the way, the truth, and the life, and yet fearing that any foreign view, if expressed, will turn people away from him? I believe what Jesus told Thomas. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. John 14, chapter 6. Furthermore, I believe in the consequences of what that means. Say that I have lived my entire life understanding the truth that the clear sky is blue and the fresh grass is green. How can that be changed by someone saying that the sky viewed through his eyes is bright purple and the grass is a deep dark red? This knowledge I have about the sky and the grass, call it my faith, would lead me to patiently disregard the foreign views of this stranger. If the strength of his conviction impressed me, I might go back outside and look again at my sky and my grass. Obviously, I would see blue and green, respectively. If I had a relationship with this person, I might go visit his home. 
Once there, I would expect to find not only blue sky and green grass, but also an opportunity to share once again the truce I hold dear. If he fails to see the light on this day, at least I would have planted a seed in his mind, telling him that he should continue to question his assumptions and test them against the confidence I expressed to him through my faith. Since his salvation is at stake, I would pray that discussing our differences might somehow help in the future. Since my salvation is assured, I would have no reason to fear hearing about his chromatic worldview or sharing my knowledge of blue skies and green grass. When you have faith, you don't need to fear losing your values to the viewpoint of another person. If you don't have faith, however, you may be satisfied, suggesting that we all pledge our collective belief in a sky of any color or perhaps in the existence of fresh grass. That way, however pointless, you'll make sure that a tradition is restored with nothing lost and nothing gained. I, for one, will continue praying that these proposed amendments and the faithless and sinful compromises they represent will never come to pass. Thanks for listening.